Well, as we continue to return to our seats, it is uh, a privilege to be able to stand up here this morning and bring the word this morning. I will try, I will endeavor to not be overly long, seeing how we have kids in service today, but as I worked on my sermon and I went to print it off, it was longer than I realized, so just take a deep seat in the saddle and buckle up, we're going to have some fun today. It is, uh, it is just an awesome privilege to be able to preach this morning. And uh, so as we go into this morning's sermon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the passage. It's just a few short verses, just a very familiar story. And then we're going to get to work on this after we pray. So let's read the passage together. This is from Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. And they stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them... Seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God, he fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up. Go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Let's pray. Father God, with gratitude we come before you again today. With joy we worship you. And with eager anticipation we open your word to hear you speak and teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can hear and we can understand your word. I pray that as I preach this morning that you would help me to be clear in what this passage is teaching us. I hope you will help us to each learn of what it means to be joy-filled, faith-fueled believers in Christ. I pray that you would bless this time, Lord. I pray that you would quiet the hearts of all the little children that are in here today, Lord. And I pray that it wouldn't be too long and boring for them. And I pray, amen. So here in two days, on the 31st of this month, we get to celebrate one of the best days of the year. And if you are also thinking of Reformation Day, then you're on the right track. So Reformation Day, this is a a, a date that points back to a little event that happened in 1517, when an Augustinian monk went to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed what were 95 theses for disputation. What he wanted to do is he wanted to spur a debate within the, within the cloister, have a debate between the monks and between the different groups, the Augustinians and the Benedictines. He wanted to have this discussion about what it means to be saved, who the Pope is, what authority the Pope has, all these different things. If you read the 95 theses, you wonder why it started a Reformation today. But in its day, it was, it was the spark that lit the Reformation. And at that Reformation, people started leaving the Roman Catholic Church 
and starting what we call Protestant churches. We are a Protestant church. And they started leaving these churches. And as, as this Reformation took steam, there was these ideas that were in there. And they coalesced into five phrases that we use. These five phrases are in Latin, and we call them the five solas. Sola means alone. And these are, are shorthand for our, a proper understanding of how the Lord saves us. We are saved by faith alone, or sola fide. Through grace alone, sola gratia. In Christ alone, solus Christus. According to Scripture alone, sola scriptura. To the glory of God alone, sola deo gloria. And I hope as we work through today's passage that we're going to be able to see how most of these five solas are evident in this short little seven, eight verses that we have before us. In this simple story of ten men with leprosy who are healed and how the one went away justified. Now our main point today, our our one sentence summary, the big idea is this. Jesus has made us clean and restored us. Now rejoice with thankfulness to him in all that we do. So let me repeat that. Jesus has made us clean and restored us. Now rejoice with thankfulness to him in all that we do. And to flesh this out, we have three points that are going to guide, kind of be our, our roadmap to guide us through this passage this morning. And the first one is this. There is a need for restorative mercy. But point number two is this. Mere obedience is not enough. And point number three is this. Joy-filled gratitude is the fruit of faith. But before we get into the passage, I want to take a couple minutes to kind of situate ourselves contextually in the passage. You know, there, there are times, if you go back to the prologue of, Jew, of, of Luke, it says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So we, I want to, with this idea of orderly in mind, I want to look at the, this passage, and it, at first glance, it seems like this little story may be out of place. You know, we have, starting in ver- chapter 16, well, actually starting before that, but really in verse chapter 16, there's this continued dialogue between Jesus and, the, and the, his disciples and Jesus and the Pharisees. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're rolling through and there's this dialogue and these teachings and these parables, and all of a sudden, we have this little story of Jesus healing, people, healing ten men. Now, it could be that Luke is writing an orderly account, and as far as chronology goes, this was just the next event in the line. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think that this little passage is pointing us to the same motifs that are in the passages before that we've looked at over the past several weeks. I think the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us something by having the gospel writer put this story here. One of the first things that we notice is we, if we look back and we're looking for a pattern in all of these passages is this 
idea of who the insiders are and who the outsiders are in the kingdom that is to come. And it's a challenging, Jesus is challenging the prevailing view of who really the insiders are and who really the outsiders are. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 16, it starts with the first parable, which is the parable of the dishonest manager. And in that parable, Jesus says, as after he tells the parable, he says, the children of this age use shrewdness and money to gain influence in this age. Well, what he calls the children of the light leverage earthly possessions to further the gospel for an eternal goal. Then we move on to verses 14 through 18 of chapter 16. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for seeking to justify themselves by hypocritical and outward demonstrations of law-keeping and hearing, in, instead of hearing and heeding the good news of the kingdom. Then we find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And by all accounts, the rich man in the story, he appeared to be one of the insiders. He even thought himself to be one of the insiders. We see this when he, called, when he says to Abraham, Father Abraham, as he is in torment. But it's obvious in the story, as he is in torment and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, who the true insider was and who the outsider was, who is in the kingdom and who is not. Then this takes us to last week's passage, where we saw the connection between forgiveness and faith, and that faith in Christ was the operative force behind our ability to forgive, which is a distinction between those of this age and those who are of the age to come. Another point from last week's, that we'll touch, last week's sermon that we'll touch on briefly is the last verse which says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Now after all that contextual meanderings, we come, to the, to the, all, the, we come all the way to today's passage and we catch hints of this insider-outsider motif right away. When, we, when it says that Jesus was passing between Galilee and Samaria and he meets ten men with leprosy. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Even the posture of these men points to the fact that they were outcasts. Those infected with leprosy were, according to the law of Moses, to live outside of society, apart from everyone. When they went anywhere, they had to stay far away, stay on the other side of the road, and declare with a loud voice that they were unclean. They literally had to tell the world, I'm an outsider and keep me that way. So this drops us squarely into our first point. They needed restorative mercy. Back in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus begins his final journey to Jerusalem. It's a hinge point in the book of, in the book of Luke. This is the, the final portion of Jesus' life as he travels from village to village, teaching as he goes. And as we come into today's passage, we find Jesus south of the, Galilean, the Sea of Galilee and north of Jerusalem still, on his way where we find he's going to Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem. And he enters an unnamed village and is met there by men with leprosy. Your pastor Jamie touched on leprosy back in chapter 5, several, several months ago. It might have been last year. When Jesus heals a man who had leprosy and sent him to the priest to be inspected 
and offer sacrifices as commanded by Moses. There's several things that are immediately different about this passage when compared to the other. In the first, Jesus touches the man and heals him, and then sends him on his way. Well, in this case, Jesus simply tells the men, go and show yourself to the priest, and while they are going, they are cleansed. Another thing that's different is Jesus gives the man in chapter 5 a prohibition. He says, don't tell anyone. Just go show yourself to the priest. Where in this chapter, he doesn't give any such prohibition. He actually commends the Samaritan who comes back with a loud voice praising God. So we're seeing a a shift in Jesus' ministry as he makes his way down up to Jerusalem, would be the way that they would refer to it. As he makes his way to Jerusalem, John in his gospel uses this phrase over and over again, his time was at hand, or his time had come. His mission to restore people was becoming more and more acute and explicit. These ten men, as we have already seen, were outcasts from society. They were a danger to those who were around them. They had to live apart from their family and from their friends and their loved ones, from their vocations. They lost all standing in society when they contracted leprosy. They had to declare that they were unclean to all that they met. They were desperate in need of mercy. They couldn't do anything to heal themselves. They couldn't do anything to restore themselves to society or in good standing or to their families. But in all that, they had a greater need for restoration that only one out of the nine recognized. This points us back to all the teaching of Jesus that we've seen in the previous several weeks as he's showing who is actually an insider of the children of the age to come and who are the children of this age. The ten had a visceral understanding of their need for mercy and restoration in this age. But Jesus' response when only one, this doubly hopeless Samaritan quintessential outsider, a leprous man, is the only one who returns with thanksgiving and joy. As the church, when we're trying to understand the project of the church and its purpose for which God has called us, sure, all ten men, leprous men, were healed and presumably restored to society, but only one was truly restored in a meaningful way. Ministries of mercy such as medical missions and infrastructure missions do not meet the ultimate need of the people that we're going to serve. Yes, they can open up opportunities to share the gospel, but in and of themselves, they are not the project of the church. We as the church, we are gospel people. We are seeking to build, we're not seeking to build a kingdom here. We are the first fruits of the kingdom of the age to come. We are the representatives of the heavenly city that is coming down as the gospel is proclaimed to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And I'm not saying that as Christians we shouldn't be involved in medical missions or restorative mercy to the infirmed or the societal outcasts. Mercy missions are good in a common grace way, but our goal and purpose as a church is is primarily the furtherance of the gospel of Christ. And it is... And that is the mercy that has true and eternal effect. You know, there are teachings in the church that are prevalent today. I'm thinking of health and wellness gospel. That when probed honestly would see no real meaningful distinction between the nine and the one. If the primary sign of favor from Christ is health and wellness, wealth and material blessing, 
then what is so different between the nine and the one? They all had faith enough to cry out. They all had faith enough and obedience enough to go and show themselves to the priest, to the priest and be healed along the way. As a result of their pleas, their faith, and their obedience, they were healed on the way. It even appears in the story that their faith was in the proper object. They cried out to Jesus for mercy. So why does Jesus commend the one while he rebukes the others? It takes us to our waypoint number two on a roadmap to the passage, and that is this fact. The mere obedience is not enough. For these ten men, being healed was the ticket to being restored to their families. It was the ticket to being restored to their vocations and their social standing. But as we said, there was a deeper need that they had. I wonder if the nine did not take their need of restoration to being a member of the people of God seriously, because like the rich man from a few weeks ago, they thought they were already in by virtue of their birth and keeping of the law. They thought they were already the insiders. Look at Jesus' question, verses 17 and 18. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? It is evident, that these, that it is evident from this that these nines were Jewish men. They were not what the Ephesians were described as by Paul as being called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands remembering that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and providence, having no hope and without God in the world. According to the law of Moses in Leviticus 13 and 14, in order for them to be restored to the commonwealth of Israel, they only needed to follow ceremonies and wash, and all would be set right. Their position in society and their families would once again be restored. They would be restored to the right standing within the people of God as they understood it. Their faith was in their own obedience. It was in their own law-keeping. They thought that the people of God, the insiders, were determined by ethnicity and adherence to the law and heredity. Yes, they obeyed Jesus. They cried to him for mercy. They followed his command. They had faith, and their faith even had works. So what's the rub? Why was the foreigner commended and they were rebuked? You don't have to turn here, but think about James chapter 2. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith from your works. And I will show you my, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Don't the nine who went and obeyed Jesus and were healed fit this passage? Like we saw, they had works. They had faith. Where's the problem that Jesus is pointing to? Like we... <coughs> this poses an interesting question. What are the works in view 
in James chapter 2, and more importantly, what is the operative force behind them? Many understand that James, James would be teaching that our faith is made evident by our following the commands of Christ. But I think the context of James chapter 2 and this passage before us should cause us to pause and look a bit closer and ask more questions of the text. It was not the works of the law that will save us or justify us or prove our faith. It is not right theology. It's not right belief. It's not right obedience. Even the demons have that as far as right theology. And they shudder. It's the why behind that matters most. Are you obeying in joyful gratitude? Or are you obeying out of obligation? Are you obeying with an understanding that your obedience to the commands of Christ will someday be the final justification that your faith was valid? Here's another question. Does your pursuit of obedience make you more or less free? Are your works, your spiritual disciplines, your obedience to the commands of Christ out of a heart overflowing with gratitude to Christ? Or is that out of a need to do more and try harder to show that you do have faith or to justify your faith? One, one is a natural outflow of the heart and the other is a legalistic adherence to an, in an attempt to justify ourselves. One is the fruit of the law and the other is the fruit of the gospel. And I mentioned earlier, the last verse from last week says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. There is a recognition in this verse that obedience does not earn you anything. Obedience is our duty. Obedience to the command, obedience to the command of Jesus to go, for, for these men to go show themselves to the priests, had no impact on whether they were the true sons of this age or whether they were true sons of the age to come or merely sons of this age. It is a profound truth that faith without works is dead. But what are the works? All had, all had, ten had faith alive enough to go and obey. But from what can, we can see in the narrative, only one had life through faith. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're not sure about this what we're talking about. You're not sure. You're not, under, you're not understanding who Jesus is. This is a great day for you to be in church. This insider-outsider distinction is of vital importance to you. How do we become one who is in the age to come? You're like the ten in need of mercy and restoration. But are you like the nine who only saw your need for restoration in this age? Or are you like the one who came back in joyful thanksgiving to Christ. The nine who were healed only had hope in this day. But the one who returned, our friend the Samaritan, when he came to Christ with joy-filled gratitude, Jesus says his faith had saved him. So take some time. Read the rest of this book of Luke. Come back next week and ask someone who looks like they're regular around here to help you understand it. We'd love to help you understand and get to know Jesus. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But what is the works, to use James's language, that was the fruit of faith of the Samaritan? Well, that was rejoicing in Christ and returning in gratitude. And now we arrive at the final leg of the journey through this little passage. 
joy-filled gratitude is the fruit of faith. So let's look again. It says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. As we have just seen, the difference between the faith of the nine and the faith of this Samaritan, who was a social outcast in more than one way, being both a Samaritan and a leper, is the fruit that that faith produced. They were healed, and I'm sure that there was joy. There was relief, and there was gratitude at some level. How could there not be? They were hopeless with no future, and now all has been restored to them. But the joy of this Samaritan, in some ways, would have been muted, wouldn't it? Maybe he was healed, but his social standing as a, uh, but his standing as a social pariah, as a result of him being a Samaritan, was still in place. Up until this point, at least he had nine other companions. But once they go and they're healed and they're declared clean by the priests, he even loses them because they're Jews and he's a Samaritan. Sure, he may be able to go back to his village and his family, but that is less sure than the nine. What we see in this man is the fruit of faith, and that is joy-filled gratitude. I want to take a couple minutes of our remaining time looking at several passages from the New Testament that I think will help emphasize this point, the point of the centrality of faith, or the centrality of thankfulness in the life of faith. And we can start with a negative example from Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they knew, the, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. Paul is teaching us that one of the marks of an unbeliever is a lack of gratitude to God. The Father has clearly made himself known in the things that have been made, and yet one of the first demerits that Paul gives out is a lack of giving thanks to him. Paul has further instructions for, for the churches and other believers in, in several of the other books of his writings that help us see the centrality of thankfulness in the life of faith. Ephesians 5 says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and in everything for God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then you go to Philippians chapter 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God. Colossians. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, or do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then this is from chapter 4 of Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think I'm preaching this sermon a couple weeks early. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. You want to know the will of God for your life? Give thanks in all circumstances. What is interesting about several of these passages is their similarity in that they're in that thankfulness in our heart is so closely aligned with our unity as believers. As husbands and wives, we can also, <coughs> we can often at times be, have competitive disunity in our marriages that creeps in when our focus is drawn away from the greatness of what has been done for us in Christ and drawn to some petty or even substantive disagreements that we may have. We fight or we bicker over bills and parenting and chores. But listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This may seem like just command, but it's so much more than that. This is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. This is a reminder of what Christ has done for both you and your wife as blood-bought members of Christ's church. He has given himself for you and your wife. He has sanctified you both. He has cleansed you. He will present you to himself with splendor. And by doing so, he has freed you and brought you into right standing with him. So then, in joyful gratitude, to make much of him in the praise of his glorious grace. Love your wife, and wife, submit to your husband in a way that shouts with a loud voice the greatness of your Savior. And as we continue to unite as a church, there are inevitably going to be disagreements or frustrations or offenses. And one thing that will help us is that we, our love for one another is not based on affinity or similar likes and dislikes or interests but that we all realize that we were outcasts, that we're outside the kingdom until our Savior came. And we cried for mercy, and he restored us and cleansed us. It's going to be hard for me to argue with you when we're both running back to Jesus in gratitude and praise. Now, as we deal with loss of friendship, heartbreak of loved ones who die, suffering the consequences of our sin or the sins of others, the joy-filled gratitude of Christ, who is holding you fast, is the anchor for your soul. If you're trusting in Christ alone, through faith alone, that the grace of God alone will bear you up, you can truly say in every case that it is to the glory of God alone. 
You will, like the Samaritan, rush back to Jesus over and over, shouting loudly with your faith-fueled actions to the praise of the glory of God. And let's, as we close, I want to look back at Colossians chapter 3. We read a short portion, portion earlier when we were instructed to let peace of Christ rule in our hearts with thanksgiving. But look at the context that leads up to this. Starting in verse 1, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are the earth. This is one of my favorite verses. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarians giving in slave or free, no insiders, no outsiders, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how Paul is showing us that the things that hold us together, the reason behind the putting off and the putting on, is the glorious truth that our life is hidden with Christ in God. What other reason do we have to live out our lives in joyful gratitude to our Savior? Sola Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Father God, so often we are distracted our attention is drawn away from all that you have done for us in Christ. We do not give you glory alone. We seek glory to ourselves. We try to justify ourselves by our right actions, not understanding that true righteous actions are born out of joy-filled gratefulness to you. I pray that you would keep our attention and our minds fixed on you. 
Forgive us when we allow disunity to creep in and pull our attention away from you. Forgive us for the way that we do not show gratitude. We do not every day wake up, take a breath, and realize that every gift, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Everything that we have in our life is from you. And we are profoundly grateful. Lord, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. And I pray that through the forgiveness that we have received from you, we forgive one another in honor of you and in joy and in gratitude of you. Lord, you are beyond our comprehension. We praise you and we worship you. And I pray, amen. You would stand. We'll read our assurance of pardon. Hear the words of your father. As he says, I, this is from Isaiah chapter 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins.